and welcome to episode five of the Weekwell Unfiltered podcast series, CEOs Uncut, proudly supported by the Wall Street Journal Barron's Group. My name is Katie Litchfield, and three years ago, I left my job of 18 years because I'd had enough of standing by and watching women getting passed up for corporate executive committee roles. Now, Weekwell is on a mission to build a better business world. Over the course of this series, I've been talking to CEOs of some of the world's largest companies, asking them the questions they don't normally get asked about gender balance. In the last episode, I spoke with the outgoing FTSE CEO of Marston's, Ralph Finlay, who hands over the reins next month to an executive committee with 50-50 gender parity. I think this comes back to the point about diversity uh, making for better decisions. Gender diversity is obviously a very big part of that. So far in this series, we have concentrated on the developed world. But in this episode, I talked to Colette Delaney, the first female CEO of First Caribbean Bank. Based in Barbados, Colette offers a fresh perspective on the challenges of bringing diversity, equality and inclusion to a company with very different issues to those we've heard about before. With more than 30 years experience in the banking industry, Colette joined CIBC in 1987 before moving across to CIBC First Caribbean in 2013. She is a former director of the Canadian Payments Association. She was also a director of Skills for Change, a nonprofit organization helping newcomers to Canada. And from her appointment in 2018, she is the first woman CEO in First Caribbean's history. Welcome to Weekwell Unfiltered, Colette. Tell me, how has your year been? Um, eventful, I think, would be the way to describe it. I mean, uh, COVID arrived in the Caribbean a little bit later than in uh, some of the other, te- other countries across the world. And, you know, it's been a challenge from day one, obviously. I mean, first of all, when tourism uh, really stopped, we had to figure out how we were going to work with our clients. I mean, we're in business as a bank. We're in, you know, we have no business if we don't have clients. So the first protocol was figuring out how we were going to work with our clients, both corporates and retail clients, where you know their income had either completely dried up or it was getting reduced because of the absence of tourism. So that was the the real focus to start with, um, and we needed to figure out how we were going to help them, which in turn put a lot of pressure on our teams and on our employees, because this was, you know, work that uh, we hadn't planned for, you know, we hadn't got ways of doing it, you know, we needed to figure out how to provide moratoria for our clients, etc. So it added an additional stress onto our employee base, which was kind of interesting, because our employees were already under stress, because we were working from home and trying to figure that out. And then the schools closed and, you know, 70% of our employee base is female and a lot of them are single moms. So that was working out, you know, how to keep up with your kids schooling at the same time as trying to do meetings and work and talk with clients, et cetera. And, you know, to start with sort of 
we weren't really into the world of Zoom and Teams and WebEx. And, you know, pretty soon we had to get up to date with all of that from a technology perspective. So, you know, COVID was really, you know, quite the challenge. And then, um, you know, we were thinking we're working a way around that, we're getting out of it. And then, you know, come April, beginning of April this year, we had a volcano erupt in St. Vincent, which caused huge issues, obviously, for the team in St. Vincent. And thank goodness, none of them actually lived in the red area. Uh, but surprisingly for us, you know, Barbados was covered by a dark cloud for two days, and which deposited a whole pile of ash all over Barbados which meant that you know, we had to postpone our return to the office. And then, you know, we were sweeping up and, you know, it, it was just added another layer of complexity onto an already difficult situation. So, um, so eventful is really the word for it. But I have to say, for me, it's all been a, a learning experience. And, you know, one of the things that I would say time and time again about people in the region is that uh, they're tremendously resilient and, you know, whilst Ash and COVID may get us down and, you know, you think about it for a couple of days, but people bounce back. And it's really a tribute to the people of the region that we're able to bounce back so well and just keep on going. And, you know, we're in the beginning of hurricane season now and touch wood, we don't we have a calm season, but we really don't need to get hit by anything else. Thank you very much. So I had no idea so much was quite going on where you are. Um, uh, Personally, what's been your biggest challenge? For me, the hardest thing has been not being able to travel because, you know, both for work and personally, you know, getting on a plane was just such a regular part of my life. And, you know, above all, the hardest thing for me was not being able to get to the UK to see my family and then up to Canada, secondarily up to Canada to, to see my friends. Uh, it was really, really hard. My mom turned 90 in April and I wasn't able to get there and never ever imagined that I wouldn't be there for her 90th birthday. So, uh, you know, fingers crossed that, uh, you know, travel opens up and I managed to get there during the summer. But, you know, and I, I've heard from talking to people across the region, that's the story for a lot of people, that um, they haven't been able to get to see their family who maybe live overseas, but then talking to friends in the UK, they've had a similar experience. You know, so maybe they live up in Scotland and their family are down in London and they don't get to see them for those special events. So I think it's been, you know, as much as it's tough from a business perspective, the personal element is, what really, is, is what's really taxed all of us over the past 12 months. Looking back now over your whole life, not just at work, have there been any women who've inspired you? And if so, how did they inspire you? I always talk about my mother in this situation. I mentioned earlier on, uh, she'd just turned 90. And um, she was born and lived through the Second World War. And then she went to teacher training college and she worked as a teacher and grew up as a working woman in a time when it was only just becoming the thing for women to go out to work. So, you know, I really admire what she did by, you know, being out in the workforce and, you know, developing her own career, having her own personality. But, you know, above all, again, I go back to talking about resilience. I mean, she lived through a world war and then just talking to her over the past 12 months in terms of you know what she's been through as someone 
who was sheltering and the little interactions she's had with people and what she's done to keep herself sane and the fact that she now attends church on Zoom. I mean, this is a woman who's never missed a Sunday and now she's watching mass um, on Zoom. It's just incredible. And, you know, she's also teaching her friends how to use their iPads, which I find <laughs> don't really want to go there, but um, it would be quite the conversation, I think. So, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for how she's been able to reinvent it herself and, um, you know, really be resilient and adapt to the world as it's changed around her. If I look globally, then, you know, the, there's a lot of female leaders out there that, you know, you have a lot of respect for. One in particular would be Angela Merkel in, the, in Germany. You know, she was born in West Germany, spent most of her, um, her development and her growing up in Eastern Germany, became a scientist, obviously a very, very bright woman. Um, but she's been at the core of the European Union for many, many, many years. And I think it's only, you know, as we move forward that we'll start to really appreciate what her legacy was in a time of great political uncertainty across the world. She's been there. She's been stable. She's provided leadership. Um, you know, and I really have a lot of respect for what she's been able to do as, and, and her, how, how she's, her longevity and how she's lasted over a very long period of time. So be interesting to see what happens in Germany, you know, as they, they go, it's starting to go through the elections and change of leadership, et cetera. So, um, you know, I hope she enjoys a very well-deserved retirement and uh, gets a bit of R&R in there. So lovely story about your mum. Really lovely. Uh, resonates with my mum who bought her an iPhone yet to turn it on. So your mum's doing <laughs> Oh no, she's doing really well on her iPad. It's quite something. So originally when we bought her the iPad, she didn't want anything to do with it. But um, she has two grandchildren and they're both sort of in their 30s now. And we uh, enlisted them as co-conspirators and said, okay, you've got to send grandma an email every week to make sure she goes on and has a look. So, uh, so we kind of got her on there. So no, it's brilliant. Um, your career spanned uh, roles in the UK and then Canada. What challenges have you had to overcome since arriving in the Caribbean? I think that gender equality still has a little way to go in the Caribbean. We're still not, um, as far ahead in terms of gender equality as I've seen in the UK and, and particularly in Canada. Um, and when I look around, it's, it's very much, you know, an economic inequality as well. Um, you know, I talked a lot, but I talked earlier about, you know, 75, 70% of our workforce is female and a lot of them are single mums. And, you know, there they are trying to support a family, trying to work, trying to get the kids to school. And, you know, until we get to a stage that there is economic equality as well as equality in the workplace, I think women are still going to struggle generally in the environment. So it, it has been a bit different uh, coming to the region, but then um, equally so, we've got some tremendous female role models across the region. So. Currently in Barbados, you know, we have a female PM, we have a female governor, uh, we have a female um, director of public prosecutions. You know, there have been many examples across the region sort of of females in leadership roles. So, so it's getting there, but it's just not as widespread as we would hope 
and, and not as widely received as we would hope. You are the only woman on your executive committee. How do you go about changing that? Well, we're working at it. I mean, it, it's, it's very conscious, but it's not, um, you know, I've always thought about you've got to have the right person for the role. And I think I'm very conscious of that in terms of, you know, whatever women I bring into the organization. So we have the executive committee and then we have the senior executive team. So as you point out, I'm the only female on the executive committee, but at the senior executive level, we have four women. And, you know, recently we've done a bit of a, a changing seats amongst the executive team. So appointed a new CFO who was male. Uh, but appointed a new chief internal auditor who was female and then the head of our Bahamas operating company who is also female. It was a female before, so we've replaced a female with a female. Um, and, you know, frankly, sort of two of the women on our senior executive team run two of our biggest operating companies. So they have very important jobs and, you know, both of them have a lot of trajectory within the bank. But for me, it's, you know, making sure that when you come to have the choice around putting people in role, roles and executive roles in particular, that you have females ready to go on the slate. So we always work from the perspective of, you know, you come up with a list of, you know, four or five people that you think are qualified for the role and then go through the interview progress process and, you know, the best person um, rises to the top and gets the role. But the really key is making sure that you have cross-trained, developed, encouraged, mentored um, sufficient women to get the women on the slate so that they are actually getting the opportunity, you know, even if they don't ultimately be successful, you've got to get them first and first of all to get the opportunity. No, you're absolutely right. It's getting them ready, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, what one thing could be a game changer when it comes to persuading CEOs to back talented women for the C-suite? Well, to be honest, um, it's not really been my personal experience that they're not ready to back women. Um, you know, I, I'm sort of certainly coming from a Canadian institution, um, you know, lots of women in senior positions there and lots of general acceptance of diversity in all its forms up in Canada. Um, but I think it, I think the game changer is just having that qualified um, bench strength in terms of having women ready for roles. So for me, it's just investing in women as they work their way through the organization. You spot a woman with talent, then, you know, make sure that she's receiving the right training, that we're cross-training, that we're moving her about in the way that typically we would move men so that, again, when there is an opportunity, there is a woman in cons under consideration. Increasingly, we are hearing stories about how women help each other or sometimes don't help each other in a lot of cases um, with advice, mentoring and championing each other. What is your experience of that? Uh, regarding your rise up to the CEO and helping other women on the way up? So my experience is that women are reticent to be openly supportive of each other. Uh, it's not been that women have been negative about each other, but it's been that we somehow feel that if we're backing another woman that we're demonstrating favoritism or we'll get called out because we're not being fair and we're preferring a woman 
over a man. And, you know, if I look at the men across the organisation, I haven't seen the men holding back from, you know, supporting somebody that they know or that they've come up through the organisation with. So I think we, we, we as females need to step forward and have confidence that we can recommend each other and support each other publicly and not, you know, have this, those qualms about being openly supportive of another woman. You know, mentoring, I do think, is very important. Throughout my life, I've um, tried to mentor people, both male and female, who have approached me, um, you know, and, and just try and work through issues. It's very important um, to have someone to talk to. Um, and be able to have a side, uh, you know, sidebar conversations with that's not ultimately going to affect how your professional development is. Um, you know, I've also been part of a group of professional women since 2005. So we met on a course that was run up in Canada, um, which supports executives, female executives in the large organizations in Canada. And one of the outcomes of that was that you could volunteer to become part of an advisory forum with other women. And um, in our group, there was a, a bunch of seveners that put our hands up. And, you know, we're down to six now, but we've been together since 2005. So we know each other's foibles. Uh, we talk once a month now on Teams and Zoom, and we try and meet, um, you know, at least once a year, um, if I go back up to Canada and, you know, we try and have dinner or something. But now in this virtual environment, we have a call uh, once a month. And, you know, we're each other's hardest critics, but we're each other's best supporters. So we don't hold back. You know, if we think somebody's going, taking a wrong path, we'll very politely, of course, you know, provide advice and counsel. But we also use it as, you know, if somebody needs a lawyer or if somebody needs a referral to somebody else. And that that has been a tremendous source of support and encouragement to me professionally over, you know, what's 16 years now. And so much so that if there is an issue at work and I'm thinking about it, my husband will say, Oh, if you talk to the ladies, if you talk to your sisters, what do they say? So, um, so, so I think creating sort of support and advice infrastructures around you is very, very important. And I was very fortunate quite some time ago now to, to meet this group of women who've been a tremendous influence on my life. And it's so lovely to hear that because you have actually described the Week World Club, which now has 144 women around the world. And we do exactly that, meet monthly. And you do have that sense of support in a safe space as well. Many of our Weekwell finalists want me to ask your advice about how best to become a member of the leadership team. What advice would you give them? First of all, perform well. Uh, yeah, you have to be doing your job well. You have to be, you know, doing it as well as you possibly can. Um, but that's not going to get you all the way. That's just table stakes, but make sure that you do that. And then secondly, um, you need to make connections and relationships. And I think that's hard for a lot of women, just reaching out to people 
um, to have that 15-minute conversation. It's a lot easier when you could just say, oh, could I come and have a coffee with you or, you know, spend half an hour. Now you have to say, oh, could I have a 15, 20-minute Teams call? You know, just want to advise, ask your advice. But, you know, people won't think of you if they don't know you. So you've got to reach out, make those connections, talk to people around, you know, opportunities that may be coming up. What, what do they see in your area or what do they see as your strengths and what should you be working on, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's kind of relationships in the broadest center of the world, uh, which I guess is also another word for networking. Um, but then thirdly, you need to ask. And I think I learned this fairly late on that you don't get considered for something if you don't really ask for it. I mean, one of the great Canadian um, hockey players says, said something like, if you never shoot the puck, if you never shoot the puck, you never score a goal. And so I think if you don't put yourself out there and say, well, I'd like that role, or I think I'd be really good in that role. And the first time I ever did it, I was talking to my then boss, and it was a female. Uh, I, I suggested something to her. So she said, oh, that was a great idea. That's a really good idea. Leave it with me. And, you know, two months later, I'd moved into a new role, which led to another new role and a promotion after that. So um, I thought, oh, if you ask, you know, then you might get so but it's having the confidence to to do that and I think a lot of women hold back from actually saying this I mean and I know sort of 30 year old men who'll say to me Colette I want to be CEO of, of First Caribbean what do I have to do and you know I admire that confidence but I'd love it if a woman came and said okay you know I've got 20 years to go how do I become CEO no, it's very interesting because when I started Weekwell, I reached out to uh, 150 CEOs and um, yeah, most of them came back uh, just asking and that was me just asking for advice. And it's amazing that how many people don't ask because people, people are generally kind and they will give you your, their time, you know. Um, so tell me, what do you think makes uh, a great leader? So I think leadership can vary dependent on where you're working and what organization you're working in. And so, for example, leadership in the Caribbean involves, you know, a lot of empathy and you with much more of a, as a person and, you know, being more empathetic. Um, but I think generally the, the overriding characteristic, I think, is authenticity. So you cannot fake it for long enough to be something that you're not genuinely um, feeling or, 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 you know, is, isn't in your essence. So people will ultimately see through. So you have to figure out who you are and how you want to be perceived and stick to it and have other people feel that through your personal integrity and the way you deal with people, you know, your sense of equality in your values and not everybody has the same values value system and it and that's fine but 
you've got to be authentically you, otherwise it really does show through and people will will think that you're a bit of a fraud, to be honest, so. No, it's true, and also it's very draining. You, you know, if you're not being yourself, and you're making yourself up all the time, it's, you know, and oh, heaven forbid you forget, oh, you know what, this was how I was pretending to be last week, I'm going to be something else this week, so. Do you manage women in a different way to men? No, I don't think I do. I think I manage individuals in different ways. I, I'm very much a believer of situational leadership that for one particular style is good with some people and another particular style is good with other people. Some people thrive by me following up, following up, following up and you know, really being micromanaging for want of a better word and other people you'd, I'd never dream of doing that with at all. And then some people you can say, uh, I was really disappointed when you did that. And if you said that to somebody else, they, they wouldn't hear it. So I think you have to understand the individual that you're working with in your coaching. And I, I don't think that it reflects one particular gender or another. I think it reflects an individual. As a CEO and a woman, how important is the push for 50-50 gender balance in executive committees, do you think? It's important, but not as important as having the right person in the role. So it comes back to my philosophy, my philosophy of making sure that you're giving people the right opportunities and giving women in particular the opportunity to get there. I would rather have a qualified man there than a non-qualified woman. I don't think that helps anybody. And it certainly doesn't help the individual that you may have put in a role um, just because they were the female candidates. So I think that level below of nurturing development, talent development, succession planning is the really important thing the, at the moment rather than the numbers game. Do you think having 50-50 on executive committees, how important is it to have a diverse thinking executive committee, you know, bringing those different points of view, different opinions? So we really value diversity as an organization, be it gender, orientation, any other of the, you know, the diverse groups, because your clients are diverse. And if we're going to be producing the right products and the service offering for our clients, we've got to understand a wide variety of opinions. And as a leader, I like building a team around me that is not in my own image and thinks about things in different ways to myself because whilst it makes for a very easy life if you have a group of people around you who agree with you and think like you do, it actually doesn't lead to better decision making and it doesn't lead to creativity. So having diversity around an executive team I think really, really helps. As someone who has consider considerable experience outside the Caribbean, do you see any difference in the challenge that women face getting on in business? I know you mentioned about there's a lot of single mums and things like that. Um, yeah, what is your experience? Any other challenges that women face? I think about women in the region. We've got a lot of very, very capable women in our organisation. We've got a lot of women that don't have self-belief. And I think there's still that tendency to defer to men thinking that they know better. And I think as part of what I've been trying to do is, you know, 
enable people, enable women across the organization to really believe that they can do it. You know, and I, I had a conversation with someone the other week who on a call, on a meeting was really going, I'd ask a question and she'd really going into minute detail. And my observation was, you've earned the right to, to for, uh, for the executives to know that you've done the work. You have earned the right just to be able to answer the question with a one-liner, no, because we know that you've done the work. You don't have to constantly justify yourself. You don't have to constantly explain yourself. And I think generally here in the region, because we're still that little bit further back, people, women, second-guess themselves. And just trying to instill that sense of self-belief is something I think that would uh, get people on a long way. When dealing with the challenges of running a company to do good in a group of developing nations that have adverse problems, poverty, weather disasters, infrastructure, gender equality must seem a long way down the list of issues to be addressed. No, I, I, th I disagree. I think it's up there. I think it has to be up there. Um, we talked earlier around economic inequality. Um, you know, women who are head of households trying to look after their families. And I think as you raise the equality of women, both professionally and from an economic perspective, then you raise the quality, the standard of living within the country itself. And that can only augur well, and you get more educated children, be they male or female. So I, I think it's up there. Um, you know, along with all the rest, but I think it's very, very important as societies develop and evolve. The pandemic has been a major challenge for gender equality and additional pressures on women in the home sphere um, has been a major factor. Is this something you've seen in the Caribbean and what needs to be done to ensure you don't lose talented women capable of being future CEOs? Oh, it's been very, very tough period. Well, it's been a tough period for everybody. Let's give the guys a break. It's been a very tough period for everybody. Um, been, but particularly tough for women who are working women, have lost maybe, the, had lost during COVID because they couldn't have people in their homes, have lost their help and their support system through housekeepers or nannies. Um, then they were trying to homeschool, then doing all the domestic stuff. So I think it's been very, very hard for women all over the world and particularly in the region as, um, you know, we've worked our way through this. So, you know, and I think we as leaders and, you know, it's across my leadership team, we've had to develop a lot more empathy and be a lot more flexible in the way that we expect work to be done. So, you know, having, as we return to the office, still having work from home availability, um, you know, understanding when people maybe have to do the school run at an unconventional time because the kids are going in for half a day and then the other child is at another school so they have to be picked up and ferried around and you know being flexible around yes you've got a role to do you've got a job to do um but if you're doing it at seven o'clock at night because you've taken an hour off in the middle of the day to go pick the kids up that's fine um, so it's, it's a bit developing a trust relationship, but it's listening and adapting both as um, a leader and a manager and as the individual employee to make sure that we're not losing out on people because they just throw their hands up in despair and say, I can't do this. So 
it's, you know, for all of us, it's taking a lot of conversations and listening and understanding. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we all come out of this a bit stronger, actually. So. And also it's just coming back to being human, isn't it? Yep. But it's back to that authenticity. And, you know, just you are what you are and, you know, people know what they're going to get from you, irrespective of what the issue is that you're trying to deal with. So, What role should men play in changing the gender equity dynamic, do you think? I think men are key. I mean, I think you need men to evolve and to accept women as equals. And, you know, I see a lot of that in our organisation. When I became the CEO, I had been pushing a women's network across the organization, sometimes with more success than others, frankly. Um, but you know, when I became CEO, it became apparent I wasn't going to have the time to look after it. And our male chief risk officer stepped up and said, uh, I'm happy to do it. And I knew from working with him back up at Parent Bank in North America that he was a very who was a strong advocate of diversity in all its forms. So, you know, I wasn't surprised that he said he would do this. And he's been a very strong advocate for the development of females across the organization. Similarly, in um, our tech department, our male CIO and his predominantly male team have been very strong supporters of the University of the West, Indice, West Indies of um, women doing STEM top subjects, so science, technology, etc. And they've you know, become involved with an initiative called Girls That Code and trying to support people in, and women in the non-traditional uh, fields and trying to develop them, give them job opportunities and create opportunities for them to come in and do secondments. So it's things like that, that you know, we get support from the males around as you start believing that you can do it, developing that self-belief. Um, and I think the men that we work with have a very important role to play in helping us on that journey. Final question. What would you want your legacy to be? So I think over the past year, um, as an organisation, we've become much more versatile, much more agile. You know, at the beginning of COVID, we're all figuring out how to work from home and do client service from home and things like that. And, you know, we've started down a path of transformation um, in terms of the way that we serve our clients and the way that we interact with each other and the way that we work with each other. And from a professional perspective, um, I would like my legacy to be that we have tr transformed the organization to be a very modern first world banking enterprise. And then, you know, obviously from a gender perspective, having become CEO, uh, the first female CEO that we've had in uh, First Caribbean, I hope that I've added some self-belief into the minds of my colleagues and that people looking at me will think, okay, she could do it, so, so could I. So that, that would be great if I've inspired other people to believe that they could be part of the senior executive team, part of the executive committee, and ultimately have the confidence to say, I want to be the CEO. Thank you so much, Colette. That was a really fascinating insight into the challenges you and others are facing and the successes you are having too.
Katie Litchfield, and you have been listening to Weekwell Unfiltered CEO's Uncut series, proudly supported by the Wall Street Journal Barron's Group. Next up is Penny James, the Chief Executive of Direct Line. I used to hate the concept of networks, of glad handing and, you know, sort of smooch, smooching up to people. And it feels deeply uncomfortable and it felt like something that people did to get into a club. And now it's something very, very different for me. About the stage that I decided that I wanted to get onto Exco somewhere around there, I kind of realized that you have to actually put yourself out there. Part of being uh, an Exco member is being able to draw insights in from all over the place, not just from your sphere of knowledge. And you can only do that if you have connections all over the place. This series is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Weekwell works with the world's largest organizations with the aim of achieving complete gender balance, starting with 50-50 gender parity at executive committee level. You can learn more at weekwell.com. This podcast was written and produced by Katie Litchfield and Sean Smith.